Happy New Year! Okay. Welcome to 2022. You guys will be relieved I have no New Year's jokes or New Year's resolutions or New Year's platitudes for us as a church. Just one thing this morning, and that's this week's passage. We are back in Philippians today. We're picking up in chapter three, so we are halfway done with the book of Philippians. Yay! Took us a whole semester to get through the first half. I think it's going to take us about a month, maybe a month and a half to get through the second half. So we're going to speed up as we go. Um, Let's dive right in. Today's passage begins in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who... For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you reflecting on the last couple of years and wondering what's in store for 2022. Some of us are looking back with gratitude and some of us are looking back with sadness. Others are looking ahead with mixtures of hope and fear. But you are our rock. You're our strength and our fortress, a very present help in times of trouble. So in all these things, we turn our busy, fearful, hopeful, sad, regretful hearts to you. And we ask you to renew us. Renew our zeal to follow you and to walk in your ways. Renew our will to give up our sin and our selfishness, to give up our worldliness, to kill our anger and our ingratitude, to cast aside our self-righteousness and to live to you alone, living so that we may gain Christ and be found in him above all things, living so that we may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, so that we may become like him in his death, so that we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is our one true hope. Not that this year will be better than the last or the year before, but that one day we will meet Jesus face to face and be welcomed into the joy of his presence. Help us fix our hope there this morning. Be with those of us who are sick or recovering from sickness. Salsers, the Parkers, anyone else today that we may not know about. Pray that you'd be with those who have lost loved ones over the holidays those of us who are traveling still and visiting with family. 
Pray that you would be with Chris and her little one as they approach the day of his birth. Pray that you would protect them. This morning we also grieve with the stars as they mourn the loss of their little one in the womb. Pray that you would comfort them and be near to them and make a way for them to move back home soon. Pray that you'd be with the teachers who are training and discipling our children right now, that you give them wisdom and patience and grace, and that you give the kids tender and obedient hearts. Be with us now as we turn to your word. Give me boldness and strength and wisdom and power by your spirit. Give us all soft and tender hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this week's passage is a clear transition in the book, right? We know that because the first word is, finally. That's right. Thanks, Gretchen. Finally. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord has been a theme for the whole letter, right? That's why we call it the letter of joy or the epistle of joy. It's all over the place. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, Paul rejoices and gives thanks for the church and their partnership in the gospel. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, we see him rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed even by false brothers, right? People with false motives and false pretenses. Later on, still, we see him rejoicing that he'll be delivered and Christ will be exalted in his body. And then the end of chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 2 is centered around a command that the Philippians complete his joy. Joy's theme runs all over the place. Here, though, the emphasis is shifting. Remember Pastor Ben's uh, sermon a couple of weeks ago as he closed out chapter 2. We've gone from Paul and his example to Jesus and then the example of other faithful men to now here, finally, a command to the church to rejoice. We've had, you know, I rejoice, I rejoice. Now I'm telling you, you rejoice, church. Do likewise. So he's going to go on and explain what that means for us. But first, or sort of en route, he was going to warn us about those who would rob our joy in the Lord. The Judaizers, the false teachers, a group of people that call themselves the circumcision. Now, as we transition into the warning, we see that he gives us a little apology for it too. How many of us like warnings? I didn't. Bart likes warnings, yeah. Yeah, no, he doesn't. Nobody likes warnings. Maybe a little bit. Maybe we like warnings a little bit when we've seen the good that they've done in our lives, right? Right, so we can accept them. But still, still, warnings eh, kind of set us on our heels a little bit too, right? Think about your kids. Even some warnings can seem like kind of eye-rollish, right? Remember, Daniel, look both ways before you cross the street right? You know, it's like, oh yeah, that's for the other one. That's for Abby. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, look, we have those kinds of warnings, right? Like your parents, you say the same things over and over again. Why? Because we're parents and we know that you can be 15, 16 years old and careless and get yourself killed. And you still need those same warnings, right? Like it's easy to forget. It's easy to think that you're above it and you've not lived enough life maybe to see or to know somebody that's actually died or suffered because they didn't follow the simple things that they were taught from when they were three and four or five years old, right? So like, as a kid, you roll your eyes. Oh yeah, look both ways before I cross the street, right? And as a parent, you're like, yeah, I know, you know, but you kind of forget 
and you're kind of stupid sometimes, so I'm going to tell you anyway. And Paul's like that here. He's like, I, listen, I know you've heard this before, but it's no trouble to me to say the same things over and over again, and it's safe for you. It protects you. You may not like it. You may roll your eyes. But me telling you again, look both ways before you cross the street. Drive the speed, drive the speed limit. Be safe. I love you. It's in my coat pocket, my keychain. They matter, right? Those little things matter. Warnings can feel like a nag or a nuisance, but if you've lived enough life, you know how helpful they can be, right? And so the church at Philippi hasn't had to deal as much with false teachers as other churches have. Maybe they have and they've done well, okay? Other churches have really struggled and stumbled with false teaching and false teachers. And the Apostle Paul has seen the wreckage. He knows the devastation it can cause in lives to real people and to real churches. And so he's looking at the good church, right? The good church, the good kid, and still saying, look, I know you're the good kid. I know you're the one who always looks both ways, who always drives the speed limit, but look both ways, please. Drive the speed limit. I'm going to keep warning you. You still need to hear these things. And he's aware enough to know to say, don't resent it. Just please don't resent it. It's easy for me. It's safe for you. I love you. I want you to be safe. Take the warning seriously. And good kids do. Humble kids do, right? It's the proud and the arrogant and the foolish that actually roll their eyes, right? We've all been there. We've all been that kid. But some of us, when we do that, we pay the price. We know it's safe for us to hear the same things over and over again, especially because we forget them so easily, right? So God warns us of the same things over and over and over throughout Scripture. All over the place, there's repetition upon repetition upon repetition. We're going to say the same thing, but different. There's a whole book in Scripture called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It's just a repetition of the giving of the law. You have it in Exodus, and we turn around, we have a whole other book. This is like a lot of repetition, Right? God knows we need to hear the same things over and over again. And we also know that the Old Testament people of God needed to hear the same things over and over again. And they did hear the same things over and over again. And they still fell into disobedience and unbelief. Right? We're not above that. None of us are above that. The danger of drifting is always imminent. We have to constantly remind ourselves and one another of the basics. The danger of our church drifting and becoming susceptible to false teaching is real always real. Because we're sinners, we're human. If we're humble, we appreciate the warnings. Even when it gets intense, which it does here, the Apostle Paul definitely ratchets up the intensity. We're going to go through today's passage sort of verse by verse, line by line, and look at it as we go. So next verse, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Let's stop and just talk about the language that's being used here. That's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? If all Scripture is God-breathed, then it is. And if all Scripture is profitable for instruction, and it is. And if there are constant commands for us to imitate people like the Apostle Paul in Scripture, which there are, comes a little later in this chapter even, this is a good place to learn some instruction on how to deal with false teachers, right? 
So who were these false teachers? As a group of people that called themselves the circumcision or the party of the circumcision. And they taught that all Gentile believers needed to be circumcised to obey the law and to receive access to God and to be acceptable to God. You can't come to God unless you've been circumcised. That's what they taught. Instead of coming simply and humbly to God through Jesus, by grace, through faith. Everywhere Paul goes, like if he goes somewhere and starts a church, these false teachers, then he leaves, these false teachers seem to sort of just like kind of come behind and they show up and they're like, now Paul got you started, but let, let us take you further. They're parasites. Okay, they come in, Paul's done the work of laying a good foundation and they come in and they sort of like shift things and they draw people to follow after themselves. Okay, that's the kind of people that these people are. They infiltrate the churches. They're especially uh, all over the place in the Galatian church. So the letter to the Galatians deals with these guys in a really intense way. They've not gotten anywhere with this church at Philippi. It's still good, though, for Paul to warn them. So he calls them three names. Okay, so here we've got some sort of holy name calling. What's the first name that he calls them? Dogs. Dogs. Aw, Cute. No. Not cute, right? Y'all been to a third world country mission trip or anything like that? Y'all know the kind of dogs that he's talking about? Those are the kind of dogs that he's talking about. Kind of dogs that roam the streets of Juarez, Mexico at night. It's my point of reference. They're mangy. They're diseased. They're dangerous. They're filthy. You don't want to pet these dogs. They may bite you, they may give you rabies, they may give you any number of other things, like it's just they're nasty. It's a nasty name. Dangerous, disgusting. They are scavengers, they roam the streets, they eat refuse. That's the first thing that he calls these guys. Dogs. It's a loaded term that he takes and attaches to these false teachers. Dogs. Pleasant, right? Not so pleasant. Then he moves on. And the second thing he calls them is evildoers. When's the last time you referred to somebody as an evildoer? Not something we like to do, right? These are evil men. The men who pretend to be doing good, who pretend to be helping you, who pretend to be godly, but they're wicked evildoers. Their godliness is a sham. They've come to deceive you. They're dogs, they're evildoers. And then the last thing he calls them is something that's actually really difficult to translate. So the translation on the screen that we read says, those who mutilate the flesh. The New American Standard says, the false circumcision. The King James is actually the best here in terms of actually translating the sense, but it uses an archaic word that it's like we don't understand what it means. But it at least demonstrates the fact that it's a, a, a pun. He calls them the concision as opposed to the circumcision. So in Greek, the word is peritome. I'm not going to get into Greek normally, but uh, when it's fun or interesting, and today it's kind of fun, I think it's kind of fun. We're going to get into it just a little bit. So the Greek word for circumcision is peritome. Peri, like perimeter, around. Tome means to cut. So cut around. Y'all get the image, right? He changes it to kata, which means instead of around, 
true. So he's making a pun on their name, on what they call themselves, the circumcision, but he's mocking them. He's ridiculing them. And so the English translators don't know what to do with it. They're like, it's a pun. It doesn't quite work. We don't really have a word for that. And so mutilators of the flesh is kind of what he's getting at, or false circumcision is also what he's getting at, but it's just like, he's just mocking them. Sort of like a dad joke, right? He's like, oh, the circumcision, more like the cut it all off people. It's kind of like that, which he does actually, he says the same thing with the Galatians, right? He says, all these people who are zealous to be sure you all are circumcised, I wish they would go a step farther and cut the whole thing off. And that is actually what he says. Right? It's a little crass. It's a little crude. But he's going after false teachers. People that are out to deceive us. To cause us harm. It's ridicule. It's graphic. But it's in the Bible. And we need to not be more holy than Scripture as we talk about these things. Right? Okay? Sarcasm, irony. Um, sort of like calling bad, soft evangelical churches evangelifish or something dumb like that, right? Like, it's just silly. But it's a label. It means something. They, they lack spines, so evangelifish instead of evangelicals. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is mocking these men. So is there a place in our understanding of Scripture for treating false teachers these way, this way? This is the kind of thing that Jesus does over and over again, actually, with the Pharisees and the scribes. He calls them blind guides, snakes, a brood of vipers, open graves. That's how God often deals with false teachers, actually, by just mockery. It's also what uh, his preachers and prophets do with false gods. Go read about what Elijah does with the prophets of Baal as he mocks Baal. It's pretty fun. Pretty intense. Listen, these are false teachers we're talking about. Okay? They're not wandering or lost sheep. They're men who have taken on the mantle of teacher and instructor, who have set themselves up to speak for God, and they're actively, harmfully leading God's people astray. They are wolves. They are, in fact, evildoers. And so in order to protect the sheep, shepherds, like Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, do what they can, everything they can, including labeling these guys with names like dog and mutilator of the flesh. Sort of like seeing something evil on TV and telling your kids, that's evil. We're not even going to flip the TV off, turn the channel, whatever. We're not going to go there. You put some fatherly weight behind things, you attach a label to it, it's effective. It's a tactic that can be abused, Right? But it's also a tactic that can be used appropriately. Okay, so now he's going to establish a contrast. He's labeled them. Now he's going to explain why those labels are appropriate. So moving forward, he says, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. The true circumcision. In other words, they're coming in and they're trying to steal our terminology. They're trying to take the language of Scripture and redefine it. They're trying to co-opt biblical ways of speaking for themselves. I'm not going to let them do that. They don't get to claim the right to be called the circumcision. We'll call them something else. We'll call them the concision. We'll call them the something other scission, but not the circumcision. We're the true circumcision. Those who have been circumcised of heart, 
inwardly. Those who understand what circumcision is about. It's a symbol of something that's inside our hearts that God does to us. We who worship God in spirit and in truth, who belong to Jesus, we're the true circumcision. We're not going to give them that, that word. We'll attach something else to them. We're the true circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. They don't. We put no confidence in the flesh. They do. Since those three elements, worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh, are drawn out for us, they're things we can use to actually test ourselves and test for false teachers. Okay, the first is that we worship by the Spirit of God. Our worship is spiritual in nature. It's supernatural. We trust in God. We worship Him in spirit and in truth. Their worship is about outward forms. They honor God with their lips. Their hearts are far from Him. They were the kind of people who would prepare a sermon in such a way that if the Holy Spirit didn't show up and move in power, you'd have some good self-help. Right? Build the service so that the Holy Spirit becomes irrelevant. You have some emotional singing, a good show, a helpful thought for the day. Who needs God? Who needs real transformation? We, on the other hand, Paul says, worship by the Holy Spirit, who has awakened our hearts to see and to rejoice in Christ. We depend on him. If he's not here, we're lost. These things are really of a fabric. The second is that we glory in Christ Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit causes us to do in worship to look to Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus. These men weren't looking to Jesus. They were looking to the law. They were looking to signs and symbols. They were looking to things like circumcision instead of to Jesus. Today, we might say they're looking to their baptism instead of looking to Jesus. No. Circumcision, baptism are shadows. They point to the substance, the reality. We don't glory in those things and depend on those things. Right? It's not our circumcision that gives us access to God. It's not our baptism that gives us access to God. It's Jesus. We come to God through Jesus by faith. That's it. We glory in Jesus. Those things point to this thing. False teachers don't worship by the Holy Spirit, and they don't glory in Christ. They glory in any number of other things, no matter how often they throw the name of Jesus around. And ultimately, what they do is put confidence in the flesh, in who they are, in what they've done, and what they're doing for God, in slick videos and lights and smoke and mirrors, or in robes and gowns and sacraments and more smoke and mirrors, but not in Jesus. So Paul looks at the church at Philippi and says, we're not those men. We don't put confidence in those things. We've looked at our flesh. We found that it's hopeless. It's hopeless. It's empty. We need something more than outward signs. We need the real thing. And thank God we've been awakened by the Holy Spirit to see that, to see our sin, to see our need, and to see Jesus. We know that in ourselves, there's nothing good in us. We can't put confidence in ourselves. That would leave us lost. We have to look somewhere else. We have to look to Jesus. Okay? Keep moving through the passage. Though... I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What's he doing? He's saying, hey guys, look, these people that are trying to deceive you, or that may come and try to deceive you, they think they're something. Whatever it is they're trying to tell you they are, and that you need to be, that's me. They're describing me. They can't live up to me. All of the righteousness they tell you, you have to have to have access to God. I have it in spades. I have it way more than they do. And I'm telling you, it's worthless. It doesn't do the job. It doesn't get you there. Circumcision, I was circumcised on the eighth day, like the law says. I have it. Today we might say, well, I was baptized. I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I've jumped through every hoop. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, I've got the heritage, I've got the ancestry. Guys, I've got the lineage. I was here first. As to the law of Pharisee, I've got the training in the theology. Whatever letters you want in front of my name or after my name, I've got it all. Doctor, PhD, whatever, it doesn't matter. I've got the training. As to zeal, zeal? I went around persecuting the church. Let's talk about zeal. I've got blood on my hands from martyrs. Zeal, I got you beat. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. With respect to men, anybody looking at me, I had them beat. In other words, these guys that are coming to you, telling you all these things that you need besides Jesus are posers and frauds. They wish they could be me. I would be the standard. And I'm telling you, what they want, what they're telling you you need, I had it, and I threw it away. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All these things these men count as gain are nothing. They're loss. No one has the right or the ability to boast in their flesh like I do. This is what Paul's saying. You're not a bunch of circumcised Jewish males. You don't have the history. You don't have the CV. You don't have the pedigree. I had it all. And it was nothing. It was just in the way of Jesus. It was all in the way. I had to give it all up. And that's what happened. Remember on the, what happened, right? On the road to Damascus. We talked about this in our first week on Philippians. He's on his way to persecute the church there, and Jesus appears to him and turns on a dime, gives it all up. Everything he was living for, everything he thought mattered became worthless to him. All of his self-righteous accomplishments became nothing. He realized those were the things that kept him from coming to Jesus in the first place. No one comes to Jesus with anything in their hands. Can't bring him enough to measure up, can only come empty-handed. If anyone would be my disciple, Jesus says, let him take up his cross and follow me. You take up your cross, you're dying to this world. You're dying to everything else that you valued, that you treasured, that you held dear, that you thought made you a good person, that you used to get through life. The first step of obedience to the gospel is death. Death to your former way of life. Death to the things that you lean on and depend on. 
Paul continues, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul doesn't just forsake his self-righteousness. He forsakes, turns away from everything that would keep him from coming to Jesus. Everything that would keep him from knowing Jesus. He considers them rubbish. Ready to go back to the Greek for half a second? Because it's fun. Greek word for rubbish is a word uh, called skubalon. Generally speaking, it has to do with dogs. So he's called the false teachers dogs. Skubalon is... uh, what mangy dogs eat, and also what they excrete. It is not a word that you find often in Greek because it's not a word that's used in polite company. So it's what mangy, nasty dogs eat and what mangy, nasty dogs excrete. It's garbage. It's rubbish. It's not polite to say. The righteousness of these false teachers, these dogs, is scubalon. What's the point? The point is not that we tick a bunch of boxes and God's pleased with us because we're pleased with ourselves. It's that we gain Christ and be found in him. We cannot gain Christ except by losing what we have. If you want to be rich in grace, you must be poor in spirit. Then all things are yours in Christ. The language of counting everything as loss is actually borrowed from a shipwreck. It's sort of sailor terms. And Paul's been sailing and he's actually been through a shipwreck at this point. Okay, this is a sailor's term, actually. Counting things as loss is what you do. You're a sailor. What's the most precious thing to you? It's your cargo, right? That's your trade. That's your money. That's your life. That's your livelihood. It's your cargo. You get in a storm. Your ship's threatened. You got a choice to make. Try to hang on to your cargo or count it as loss. Well, that's, hard to, that's a hard thing to do, Right? It's a hard decision to make. That's the decision we all face when we come to Jesus. Can I let go of all the things? Can I really let them go? Can I understand that my life and my soul is at stake here? And I have to be willing to throw it all overboard so that I can lay hold of Jesus and be saved. Once you begin to see the value of your soul and the value of Jesus, what happens to the cargo? Counted as loss. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That is what these guys are preaching. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. There are two kinds of righteousness. One belongs to man, the other belongs to God. One comes through the law, the other comes from God. And it's obtained by faith. You have two choices. You can try to come to God by your own good works. You can try to come to God based on your ability to live up to his standards. You can try to be a good person. You can try to be a good Christian. You can come here every week. You can keep your home in order. You can try to present it all to God as your righteousness. Look, God, my righteousness, bless me. I've I've got you in a corner. You're not getting God in a corner. Your righteousness is nothing to him because you're still a sinner. If you do that, God will not be pleased or satisfied. You can't reach his standard of perfection. So you can come to God naked and empty-handed, poor in spirit, like the lame and the blind who come to Jesus crying, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And if you do that, God will clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' perfect life and righteousness gets applied to you. It's our first step into the whole of our salvation. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about salvation and how it's easy to get confused and there are three parts to it. Remember that? You remember what those three parts were? First is justification, right? It's freedom from the guilt of sin, past tense, justification. We don't have any righteousness of our own, but because of what Jesus has done in living both a perfect life and dying a death on our behalf, our sins can be atoned for through his sacrifice, forgiven. And God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness can be applied or credited to us. Justification. Freedom from the guilt of sin. I have been saved. Past tense. Present tense, sanctification. Freedom from the power of sin. God, through the same power which raised Jesus from the dead, gives us power to overcome sin in our lives. Present tense, something that's happening now. We're being saved. Glorification. Freedom from the presence of sin. When we die, ultimately are resurrected from the dead, we're free from sin entirely. Future tense, we will be saved. Have been, our being, will be. <coughs> Freedom from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification, they're all here in this passage, right here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that's justification. I turned away from my own righteousness, and I turned away from my sin, and I claimed the righteousness of God that comes through faith. I'm free from the guilt of sin. When God looks at me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. I have access to God through Jesus, not through anything I've done that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's sanctification. Becoming like Jesus in his death is the way the Bible talks about how we deal with our sin. And knowing the power of his resurrection now is how he ta- the Bible talks about walking in obedience to Jesus' commands. We put our sin to death and we walk in newness of life. And yes, it does also involve suffering. Jesus suffered to overcome the guilt of our sins. We suffer to overcome their power. Some of that suffering is voluntary. It's the choice we make to just have self-discipline and self-control, to have to say no to our sinful desires. There's pain there. Some of it's external and involuntary. The circumstances God brings into our lives that God uses to help us grow and be free from our sin. But it's the power of Jesus' death and resurrection at work in us now putting our sin to death and walking in newness of life. That, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's glorification. Our ultimate goal is to attain the resurrection from the dead. That's it. That's what we're driving for. Why does Paul sound so uncertain, though? Do you see that note there? If any, by any means possible, I may attain 
I thought it's something we can't attain to. Isn't it something that's once and for all? Isn't it true that if we're past tense saved and justified, that we will be future tense glorified? Isn't that the whole point of he who began a good work in you will see it through to the end? Well, next week's passage actually deals with that whole question. So we're going to come back around to that. Okay? But until then, here's the question we need to reckon with. What are we willing to give up for the sake of knowing Jesus? What are we willing to leave behind? What are we willing to count as loss? It had better be everything. New year, new you. Now's the time to give yourself to following Jesus. Now's the time for us to give ourselves to following Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost. Now's the time to set our will to knowing Jesus and walking in his ways. To tell ourselves no. You want something worth living for, worth sacrificing for, worth dying for? The answer is knowing Jesus. You can take my word for it, but you don't have to. You can take the Apostle Paul's word for it. He's been there. He gave up everything for the sake of knowing Jesus. So guess what? He had a life of joy and peace in the midst of pain and suffering. And a life that made a difference. A life that's still making a difference. To this day, we're still reading what he wrote. He still matters. Do you want that to be you? For your own sake, for the sake of your family, the people you love, for your kids, your wife, your husband, then you must make it your aim to know Jesus at all costs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it's true and that we can cling to it. We pray that you would help us to see the places in our lives that keep us from knowing and laying hold of Jesus. Pray that you would help us to turn from our sin and to embrace our Savior and to pursue godliness with all our hearts. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.